Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So perhaps today has seemed incredibly long. Perhaps it's gone by quickly. You may have felt bored, sleepy, restless, maybe confused. Maybe you doubted yourself. Maybe you doubted your choice to come here. Maybe you doubted us. Maybe you doubted this practice. Um, Maybe you felt frustrated. Maybe you felt annoyed. Uh, Maybe you felt like you wanted to cry. Maybe you did cry. Maybe you felt all of these things. All of that's okay. And and it's all uh, completely natural. It's completely natural for us as human beings. And it's completely natural uh, for being on retreat. When we enter the space of a retreat... Sometimes it's like all of the voices and the thoughts and the feelings and the memories and the situations that we've somehow managed to keep at bay come back. And the practice in some way is actually designed to do that. When we show up, we think we're showing up for peace and happiness and joy and bliss and loving kindness. That sounds great. I'll go do a retreat. I'll have five days of happiness and goodwill. Uh, But actually, when we show up, what often happens is all of the visitors that we've been asking to go away recognize that now we're home, and so they come to visit. But the good news is that they're just visitors, like that, that uh, Rumi poem, The Guest House, if, if, you've, if you've read it. They come and they go. So I wanted to talk a little bit tonight, um, some more at length, about metta, about this, uh, this Pali word, what it means, uh, and its role in this path. Um, the heart of this path, at the heart of this path, is the... Um, <clears throat> You could say the promise. I would say uh, the fact that transformation is possible. That as human beings, we have the potential uh, not only to grow and to learn, but to to be radically transformed. And uh, the presentation of the Buddha's teachings Uh, in the presentation of the Buddha's teachings, there are generally two kinds of practices. The first kind help us to see more clearly. And these are the practices of mindfulness, insight practice, otherwise known as vipassana practice. And in these practices, it is our awareness, mindfulness, a, a kind of a seeing 
that's clear, that's not distorted by the past, that's not distorted by our filters or by bias. It's this kind of clear seeing that's the engine of transformation in insight practice. And this, uh, this realm of practices helps us to see the gap between our actual experience and the stories that we tell ourselves. And the clearer we start to see that difference, the more we start to understand which stories to let go of, which ones just aren't true and don't serve anyone. And that brings a a different flavor to our life. And eventually we start to see through the nature of storytelling in and of itself, which is a whole different kind of freedom. So this is one realm of practices. And the first half of the day today, doing mindfulness practice, that's the basis. The other uh, domain of practices in the Buddhist path are practices that heal and strengthen the heart. These are the practices of concentration, sometimes known as samatha or calming practices. And metta is one of these practices. And it works in a different way than insight practice, but a complementary way. Metta practice changes our default story. It shifts the default from, say, a story of isolation, separation, not belonging, not being good enough, to one of connection to one of belonging, to one of caring. The engine of transformation in metta practice is the continual and repeated gathering of our attention and application of our intention around the phrases, one at a time, gathering our attention and focusing our intention. That's what drives the transformation in metta practice. And it's based upon a fundamental um, aspect of the human mind and the human organism, which is that we are designed to learn that the human organism learns through repetition and patterns. Everything we know how to do, we learned by repeating. From walking to tying your shoes to speaking to eating. Muscle memory, uh, mind memory, repeating things until we have these very complex patterns of being a person, which is something that we've learned how to do. Babies don't come into this world having a name or being a person. And, uh, you know, the modern neuroscientists agree with the insight that the Buddha had 2,600 years ago. They get along quite well, the Buddha and modern neuroscientists, uh, that our minds are malleable. It's called neuroplasticity today. That the, uh, the habits and patterns of our mind can be shifted. They can be molded. The Buddha put it this way. He said, whatever the mind regularly thinks about, 
that will become its inclination. One of the analogies that I like uh, the best, uh, two, actually, I'll give you two. So one, it's like a stream of water running down a hillside. So if you can imagine a stream of water going down a hillside, what's going to happen? It's going to cut a channel, yeah, in the earth and the stone. And every time it rains, what's going to happen? The water's going to go down that channel and it's going to get deeper. Yeah. And if you want to redirect the water, that's possible, but it's going to take a lot of work at first. Yeah. You need to build a little dam. You need to help the water go in a different direction. But it, it can be, it can be, it can be moved. It can be shaped, right? So that's what we're doing. We're channeling the energy of the mind in a different direction, out of the grooves that it has. The other analogy that I find very potent is the mind, our consciousness, is like a, a, um, a patch of garden with really fertile soil, the most fertile soil you can imagine. It's moist, it's rich, it has hummus in it. Not, not hummus. <laughs> you know, the other one. I probably pronounced it wrong, right? How's it pronounced? Hummus? Humus? Humus, that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seventh grade science, Oren, come on. Very, very rich. Dark, deep, that, that, that lovely earthy smell. Okay? And whatever seeds you throw on that soil, they're going to grow. That's what our mind is like. Whatever you put into it, it grows. It takes that shape. That's why the precepts are so important. What do we put into our mind? Where do we allow the water, the energy of the mind to go? Because that's going to that's gonna get carved into it. So the Dalai Lama said, if we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. That's what we're here to do. To give regular, steady, patient attention to the love that's already within each one of us. To train the mind to go in that direction as its default. And one of the great insights of the Buddhist tradition and of this whole technology of practice that we have uh, inherited, one of the great insights that makes this practice we're doing possible is that love, kindness, friendliness, goodwill, is not just a feeling. It's not an emotion. Feelings are very ephemeral, dependent, changeable, as we know but that it's actually a capacity. It's a skill that can be learned, that can be practiced, that can be strengthened. So we all have metta within us, and we can grow it. We can, we can plant those seeds. We can channel that water. We can learn to regard our life with an attitude of care and friendliness. 
Sometimes it feels like the mind gets stuck on a really bad cable TV local channel. <laughs> and it's like, it's the only thing that's running. Did you have that happen today? There was like some story where you're like, why am I still thinking about that? I don't want to be thinking about that person or that situation or that project or that thing that I said. And the mind just gets stuck there. So metta practice helps us to learn how to change the channel. To say, you know what? Don't really want to watch that show anymore. I can change the channel. So I want to do a little experiment today. Some of, some of my talk tonight is going to be uh, experimental. I'm going to invite you to think about things or try things. So uh, you don't have to do anything special or change how you're sitting. Uh, put your attention in your hands. So with your awareness, feel any sensations that are in your hands right now. Okay, and now uh, put your attention in your feet. Use your awareness to feel any sensations that might be there in your feet. Okay, now I'd like you to uh, put your attention in your piriformis tendon. Just feel any sensations there in the piriformis tendon. And now move it to your, uh, your spleen. Feel any sense? Okay, you get the idea. So we know how we know we can feel sensations in our hands and feet very clearly, very easily. And you can move your attention from one to the other. So there are two aspects to this experiment that are important here. One is that you can move your attention at will, right? I didn't teach you how to do that. You felt your hands, you felt your feet, you moved it from one place to another. You can change the channel. You can direct your attention from one thing to another. It's a basic capacity of the mind. It's called manasikara in the Pali and the Buddhist psychology, the faculty of attention. We can direct it. Okay? That's why we can do this practice. That's why we can feel the breath or, or use a metta phrase. We can point our attention in a certain direction. Now, the other important point here is that you could feel your hands and your feet, but it was much more difficult, probably for most people, to feel the parasformis tendon or the spleen or the gallbladder. And it's not just that those are inside the body, but we don't use them every day. Right? Well, thank you. We do use them. We do use them every day. We don't consciously. We don't consciously. We don't consciously use them every day. Yes, we wouldn't be sitting here if we didn't, including the parasformis tendon. We don't consciously intentionally use them. They're not voluntary aspects of the body. The parasformis tendon is, but most people can't feel it unless you've done, unless you've done specific body work. So, but we consciously and intentionally use our hands and our feet every day so we know exactly where they are and we can put our mind there at will. That's what we're doing with metta practice. We're learning to find that place in the heart by bringing the mind back there again and again and again. And you know what? 80% of the time, you're not going to find it, probably. Where is that metta again? Oh, just may you be happy. I don't know if anything's happening. May you be well. But sometimes it's going to connect. And every moment of connection, the mind starts to learn and remember, oh, yeah, goodwill. That's what that feels like. That's where that is in my consciousness. And the more you begin to recognize and know where it is in your consciousness, you can come back there whenever you want 
just like you can come back to your hands and your feet, you can change the channel. The water is now running down a different track in the mind because you've helped to find it, to make it, to, to, to create it. We're always practicing something with our minds. So the question is, what are we practicing? What are we doing with our thoughts, with our minds? Whatever the mind frequently thinks upon, that will become its inclination. So are we frequently thinking about all of the things we have to do, or what's not going well, or what's wrong with us, or why we don't fit in, or how terrible things are in the world, or whatever the story is that we keep going back to? That tendency can be transformed, it can be shifted with practice. Our habits of impatience or frustration or comparing or inadequacy or anger or aggression or hostility, we don't need to keep watching those channels. So this aspect of the heart, of metta, of kindness, and I'll I'll say more about, and kind of fill that out a little bit in a moment, is an integral part of the whole path of practice. I know I said at the beginning that there are these two general uh, domains of practice, but really metta infuses the whole path. So for those who have studied any Buddhism, you know you have this eightfold path, this presentation of all the different aspects of cultivation. That word cultivation is the word that the Buddha used for meditation. The word we translate as meditation when we say, oh, I'm going to meditate. Meditation, the word in Pali that's most commonly used is to cultivate, that image of a garden that we're cultivating. So one of the first two factors of this path of cultivation, this path of meditation, is called right intention. What is that, right intention? Basically, the Buddha is saying, look, if you're interested in not suffering as much, in having a happy, a deeply happy, meaningful life, start paying attention to where you're coming from inside. What's your intention with things? And specifically, when we practice meditation, the formal techniques and exercises of meditation, what's our intention? Where are we coming from? And he said there there are three main intentions that you want to keep coming back to in your life. Guess what two of them are? Two of them are very close. One of them is, is kindness and the other is compassion. And the third is letting go, renunciation, simplicity. So the whole path from the beginning is imbued with this aspect of kindness, of of friendliness. The Buddha even said at one point that the whole spiritual life is about good friends, friendship. And that has a double meaning. It means it's about us being friends and supporting one another, but it also means it's about the, the quality of friendship that we have in our heart. The whole path is about learning how to have a friend, a friendly relationship with life, with experience. Uh, Jack Cornfield, who many of you 
probably uh, know who he is. He was one of the founders of IMS here in the 70s, and then he moved out to California with some friends and started Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Um, he, he asked Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was uh, another great Thai forest meditation master of the last century, great scholar and meditation teacher. He asked him um, how, this is, this is from uh, an introduction to a book uh, he edited called Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. When I asked him how so many Westerners, that's most of us, um, how so many Westerners who begin spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred can best approach practice. I need to stop. I feel uncomfortable that I said that's most of us because um, I don't want folks to feel excluded because I think that these wounds, of the inner wounds of pain, self-hatred, um, that's not just the West, right? It's, it's a cultural thing that has spread throughout the whole world. So in some way, this passage is dated. And I, I, as, as I was saying that, it just didn't feel right, so I wanted to stop. So I'll read it as it's written, but it really means, I think this means those of us living in the modern age. When I asked him how so many Westerners who begin spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred can best approach the practice, he replied simply with two suggestions. First, their whole spiritual practice would be enveloped by the principles of metta. Then they should be taken out into nature, into beautiful forests or mountains. They must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place in the midst of things. So here we are in the midst of nature, practicing loving kindness. These are the conditions for developing the spiritual life, for awakening. So this quality of metta, as I was saying last night, is associated with three other qualities. And the way that I like to understand the relationship between these uh, is that they're all different facets of a certain um, property of the human heart. And that property in Pali is called anukampa, anukampa. That word anukampa literally means to tremble with. Anu means with, and kampa is trembling. So it's the capacity of our heart to feel. We might call it empathy. We have this capacity to feel. When the heart is open, unencumbered, clear, its basic orientation is goodwill to things. You look at a child who's not stressed or afraid. What's the basic, dis- you know, it's, ah, you know, to connect. Hello, right? Just that goodwill. When this quality, this receptive feeling, empathic quality of the heart meets difficulty and pain, 
its natural response is compassion, is to care. To say, hey, are you okay? Here, let me help. Somebody falls down. Oh, are you okay? You see a child at the store who seems lost. You approach them. Hey, everything all right? Where's your mom? Where's your dad? It's compassion. It's the natural movement of the heart to alleviate, to help suffering, rather than so many of our conditioned responses to be overwhelmed, to be afraid, to recoil, to shrink, to feel embarrassed or humiliated, or to be broken by it. When this receptive feeling, empathic heart meets happiness and joy or success in someone else, you know what it does? It celebrates. It goes, all right, that's great. Congratulations, I'm so happy for you. Yes, wonderful. You know that feeling? That's called mudita. It's called empathetic joy. It's it's sympathetic joy. We celebrate, we join with another person's happiness. And the Dalai Lama said so, so beautifully, he said, when you have this quality, your chances for feeling happy go up seven billion to one. (laughs) Because other people's happiness become our own happiness. Rather than the kind of uh, (laughs) more common sense of like, could you turn it down just a little bit? (laughs) Could you have just a little less going for you? You don't have to lose everything, but maybe just not so much, right? That there's somehow that happiness is a limited resource and that if somebody else has it, there'll be less for me. And the last of these qualities, when this open, clear, empathic, responsive heart meets the inevitable changes of life, things going up and down, coming and going, the response is balance. It's a dynamic equilibrium, and that's called equanimity. It's a spacious balance that comes from wisdom, that comes from seeing things clearly and recognizing this is just the way it goes. Things change, we lose things. It's not personal, and we don't have to, um, we don't have to go down with it. When, when things are hard, that we have the space to hold it. doesn't mean we don't feel. It just means we stay balanced in the face of it. So these are the four Brahma Viharas, these best homes, these qualities of our heart that are natural, that are innate. And the foundation of them, the basic orientation, is this goodwill, this sense of kindness. So the name of this retreat is Strengthening the Heart cultivating kindness. And when Jill and I were talking about what we wanted to offer, we both really liked that sense of loving kindness practice or metta practice as a strengthening of the heart. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about tonight is how kindness is a strength and how this practice is a a way of, of bringing strength to the heart in so many ways. The first way that uh, I'll suggest that uh, metta is is strengthening is its ordinariness. It's completely accessible and ordinary. I was talking about that this afternoon. And that word loving kindness, 
the loving part someone was saying in one of the groups. It's like, I don't know what that really means, you know. What do we mean by that? It's just a translation. So the other words that we've been using of goodwill, kindness, sometimes benevolence, even warmth or care, this is the quality of kindness. It's holding the door for someone. I was, when I was in India with my first teacher, I was spending time with him and we were walking to the meditation hall and there was a rock, there was a stone in the middle of the path and he kicked the stone aside and, and then he, he looked at me and he pointed and smiled and he said, you see that? That's metta. That's metta. Because he was thinking, oh, someone else, someone might trip on this. Someone might stub their toe. Let me move it out of the way. Very simple. We all have this within us. We all have kindness within us. The root of the word metta in Pali is actually uh, the same as the word for friend, which is why it's, it's this aspect of friendliness, of friendship. And the Buddha spoke a lot about friendship and what it is to really be a good friend. A good friend is somebody who's there for us in times of happiness and in times of difficulty. You know, they don't, they don't check out when, we, when, when the road gets rough. They're there for us. A true friend is somebody who helps us, who gives what's difficult to give, who offers of themselves, who shares of themselves, somebody who will protect and take care of us when we need it, who can be supportive to us when we're afraid or when we're down and out. That's quality of steadiness and care and a certain aspect of unconditionalness and that we have this within all of us. So um, another, another meditation teacher uh, who I studied with earlier in my practice, one of his big things was saying, learn to be your own best friend. Learn to be your own best friend. And that's another way of understanding what we're doing here. Learning to be a good friend to ourself. And we're wired for this. I can't emphasize this enough. If you're sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, sounds great, but it's not happening here, buddy. You know? It's not true. It's just not true. This is innate. We are social creatures, we are born in relationship. We are born dependent on one another. It's hardwired. You can't, you can't escape it. This quality of empathy and connection. And I think as human beings, we all have experiences, profound experiences sometimes, of connection and warmth and caring. Of presence, of awareness. But we don't tend to live there they, they become these little kind of random, somehow miraculous occurrences. The practice of meditation creates the conditions for us to begin to strengthen the potential for those experiences so that they, they can arise more frequently. We can't control them, but we can put our mind in the right, in the right place. So one aspect of this practice of, of doing the phrases, of coming, of finding that intention. One aspect is 
kind of like picking up the, ta- the, the tune of metta inside, finding that note in your own life, in your own way. How have you known kindness? How have you known friendship? Making it really concrete, you know. I know for myself, when I was in high school, uh, I had a really rough time with this one group of friends who I had been really close with. And then as, you know, as kids do, something got weird and they like stopped calling me and inviting me out. And, you know, when you're a teenager, that's like one of the most important things. And it was devastating. And then soon after that, a couple of other guys who were a year older than me uh, started hanging out with me and just being really kind. And I shared with them what had happened and they were like, that's stupid, they're missing out. You're, you're awesome, you know, just hang out with us, you know? So simple, you know? It felt so good, it was so strengthening. Or I think about my grandma. My father uh, was born in Israel and grew up there in, uh, in a shack, actually. They were very, very poor. They had chickens and um, he came here when he was in his 20s, undocumented. He's now, he's now a citizen. Um, he came here for school and worked, met my mother, married. Um, but, but his parents stayed in Israel and lived there. So when I was a kid, we would go back there every summer. They spoke Hebrew. My father did not teach me Hebrew. There's a reason it's called the mother tongue. So, um, so I had this relationship with my two grandparents, but I couldn't speak the language. And my grandma, her name was Itka, Itka Levine. And uh, she was a brilliant woman. Uh, she was born in uh, Belarus, which is uh, white Russia, which doesn't exist anymore. And um, we called her Safta, which means grandmother in Hebrew, Safta. And she had uh, very, very kind of deep wrinkles in her face. And she was sort of a short, stocky woman. Um, And we would play cards together. I would teach her how to play Go Fish or War. Just, you know, this little seven-year-old, eight-year-old boy. And her hands were so soft. And we would just, we would hold hands a lot and touch hands. That was one of the ways we spent time together. It was so beautiful. I have so many wonderful memories just of her hands. The feeling of her hands and the image and, and the, the way her skin was um, kind of uh, taut but wrinkled at the same time. It's hard to describe because she had worked. She worked her hands a lot. So they were, they were weathered hands but also still very soft in some ways. So that's, that's just that, that flavor of kindness that's there in my heart, you know? So it's like listening for a song that you knew, and you're just trying to get the melody. It's like, wait, how did it go? What was it? So that's, that's the benefactor, is listening for that, that person. Sometimes it's not even a person. It could be an animal or a pet or a place, a favorite place that you had as a child that brings you back to that sense of goodwill and kindness and safety that's so basic to who we are. How would this life be without goodwill? How dreary, how bleak, 
You know, would any of us even be here today, sitting in this hall, if it weren't for kindness and the goodwill and generosity of others who supported us, who helped us out, who sat with us when we were down, who cheered us up, who said, hey, it's going to be all right. It's okay. I've been there. We'll get through it, you know. So the ordinariness of metta is a strength because it's in us, we can find it. We just have to keep listening. Another one of the great strengths of metta is that it's rooted in the truth. It's an aspect of truth. That our lives have something to do with one another, that we're connected. Sharon Salzberg, who's also one of the founders here and one of the most well-known teachers of metta today in the West, uh, she likes to also talk about metta as connection, another translation for it as connection. This sense that our lives are connected. It helps us to see and to feel our relatedness, the sense that we belong. I came across this uh, quite moving quote from uh, Mother Teresa recently. We were actually looking for a different book that had the same title as this book. And then was like, oh, this is interesting. We'll read some of this. She wrote, there is much suffering in the world, very much. Material suffering, suffering from hunger, suffering from homelessness, all kinds of disease. But I still think that the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. And Metta shows us the other side of that, that we're never really alone, that we are deeply and intimately connected with one another and with all of the life on this planet. Again, my first teacher, we were walking outside in nature. And um, I think I asked him because he spent, a, he's, he was a nomad, you know, he didn't have a home. He moved around. He was a lay renunciate. He wore white. I said, Manindraji, do you ever feel lonely? And he smiled and looked around. He said, I never feel lonely. The birds and the trees and the animals and the clouds, they're all my friends. So I am always, always with my friends wherever I go. So much metta, so much kindness and friendliness, the sense of connection that's available to us. We've all felt it. We've all had those moments, you know, in nature. Somehow the conditions are just right and you just feel like everything's alive maybe or you're connected to everything. Or some sense of like everything's going to be okay. Here's another little experiment or reflection. Just turn your mind back and consider all of the people who are a part of your being here today. Friends, teachers, mentors, a book you read, something you heard online, 
parents, relatives. Just sensing all of those connections here with us. So as we learn to channel the water in a different direction, down that hillside, another one of the strengths of metta is that it builds concentration. And I started talking about this a little last night. Again, this word concentration is a rudimentary translation of the word samadhi, which literally means to gather together, to bring together So it's that facility of being able to bring our attention back to the moment. So in some ways it's ironic, the very aspect of the practice that sometimes can feel the most frustrating, like, God, why won't just stay with the phrases? You know, needing to begin again and again and again. Sometimes, you know, like ad infinitum, it seems so many times. It's actually that very beginning again the bringing the mind back, that strengthening concentration. The ability to gather our attention and focus it in one place. It builds slowly one moment at a time by repeating, by coming back, by coming back, to listen fully and re-arrive in the moment. So we, we use the vehicle of loving kindness, of the phrases, of the intention, to gather our attention. But that process of gathering itself, the mind learns how to do that, and that's a transferable skill. We're then able to do that with other things, to gather our attention together on the breath, to gather our attention together with someone that we care about, being really present with them, to gather our attention around reading something or writing something or painting something. So this is another one of the strengths of metta practice. It's also a profound support for being happy. We can sometimes think that we'll be, we'll be kinder when we're happy, right? If you're having a bad day, you're like, I don't have, I just don't have the energy to be nice to people, you know? But actually, it's the other way around. We're happier when we're kind, when we can find that inside ourselves and offer it. That actually brings happiness. So just reflect on it for a moment. Just think about how do you feel when there's kindness present, when there's goodwill present? What's that experience like? Not in some lofty way, just in this very basic down-to-earth way. And how does it feel when it's absent? How is it when the mind is devoid of goodwill? Another another teacher uh, in the Thai forest tradition uh, says... Goodwill is the whole atmosphere of our practice. It's what we sit in. What else are you going to sit in? Ill will? 
So when there's goodwill, the heart can start to be happier. And there's a sense of redefining happiness here, not so much as happy-go-lucky as a feeling, but also as, as a kind of inner resourcefulness. And this is, again, another way that Sharon likes to talk about metta. An inner resourcefulness that we, we're able to respond to things in a different way, that we can respond with this sense of, may you be well, just this, this response of kindness. Because if happiness is just feeling good, then what happens when the movie's over? Or what happens when the relationship ends? Or you don't get the gig, right? But instead, it, it has to include something deeper, a kind of, a kind of wholeness or, or cohesion inside that allows us to face adversity and still be resilient and still say, you know, it's going to be all right. May I be well. May this be well. To not be consumed by our pain or difficulty. And metta metta strengthens that resilience in the heart to meet the conditions of life with a spirit of openness and warmth. So we can talk about the strength of metta in its ordinariness that's accessible to each of us that it connects us, it's rooted in in the fact of our interconnectedness. Metta, the strength of metta in in our ability to uh, learn to, to gather our attention, to have the mind be more stable and collected. Uh, It brings a kind of resilience and resourcefulness that is is, uh, a kind of happiness for us. Another important aspect of metta, which we'll we'll experiment with over the next few days, is it's it's unconditional. It's unconditional. In uh, In the suttas, the early texts, The description is, even as a mother protects with her life her only child, so should one cultivate a boundless heart towards all living beings. So it's that unconditional love of a mother for a child. That's another aspect of metta. That it can deepen from this, you know, just this basic warmth and kindness. That's not conditional. You hold the door for someone. It's not like, I'll hold the door for you if you smile at me. You know, or if you tell me, oh, you're such a good person, right? No, it's just here, here you go. That quality of unconditionalness can, can deepen. The, uh, the image that's used is, uh, is of the rain falling. And the rain, it falls on all the ground equally. It doesn't pick and choose. I think I'll rain a little over here and not over there, unless you live in the Bay Area, and then it does do that. <laughs> Most of the time, it just rains all over touching everything. So metta isn't based on certain qualities. We don't have to perform or achieve something. It's not based on status or wealth. And there's something remarkable in this, in the unconditional aspect of it. If you've ever been around somebody who treats everyone 
with respect and kindness. You know people like that? It's pretty remarkable, right? They're, they're the same. Joseph's like that. If you've ever been on retreat or spent time with Joseph, one of the things that's so remarkable, he's so kind and just ordinary in a good way, but with everyone, at least, at least all the times I've seen. This unconditional aspect of loving kindness. And this starts to illuminate what's called the, traditionally called the near enemy. Each of these Brahma Viharas has what's called a far enemy and a near enemy. What that basically means is the opposite and just like a near miss. So the opposite of loving kindness is ill will. And actually one of the definitions of metta is just the absence of ill will. Just not having hostility and aversion. That's metta if you're not sitting with aversion. So that's a good thing. That's attainable. Um, the near miss of, of, uh, of metta is attachment. And intimate relationships, it's kind of always it's flipping back and forth between that sense of openness and love and I'll love you if, right? I'll love you if you do this for me, you be that for me, right? So it's a little bit different. We're wanting something back from the person. And as we explore the loving kindness with the different categories of people over the next few days, you may start to notice that, that sometimes the phrases are coming and they're conditional. It's like, may you be happy, because if you were happier, you'd be a lot nicer to me. <laughs> right? That's not metta. That's attachment. So it's a near miss. There's something we're wanting back from it. When we start accessing this unconditional aspect of metta, that's when it starts to become more of, of, the, of what's, what we're chanting in the morning. It's called uh, immeasurable, boundless, expansive. Because it's not limited. It's not based on I like you and I don't like you. It's impartial. It's goodwill towards all beings. And that's boundless, that's expansive. Metta is also a protection. This is another way it's talked about in the, in the texts and in the tradition. It protects us. Kindness is a strength because it protects us. In fact, the, the story of how this practice originally came about in the time of the Buddha was as a protection. Some monks were practicing for their annual rains retreat. For three months, they would go and just do intensive meditation practice. And the Buddha sent them to a certain forest. And the story goes that they went there, and at first the tree spirits, you can understand that in whatever way makes sense to you, were like, oh, great, there's some monks here, cool, all right. And then when they got wind that they were going to stay for three months, it was like, okay, you've been here a couple days, all right, this is our home. They started making it really hard for them and producing frightening sounds and awful smells, and uh, the monks got really scared and ran away and went back to the Buddha. So we can't practice there. You know, there are demons there or spirits or something. It's just really, really freaky. Whether you believe in spirits or not, you know that feeling you get somewhere, you're like, ooh, this feels kind of weird here. They just, they had that sense that like, I don't think I want to be here. So the Buddha taught them loving kindness practice in response. And he said, this is the only protection you'll ever need. Go back there and practice this. 
Send goodwill towards all beings in all directions. And as the story goes, they did. They went back there. The tree spirits were happy and they had a good retreat. So one of the phrases that you'll see posted on the board, one of the traditional phrases is, may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. What is inner harm? The Buddha said, there's nothing that can do you more good than your own well-trained mind. And there is nothing in this world, neither an enemy, nor a thief, nor an attacker, that can do you more harm than your own mind, than your own poorly trained mind, your untrained mind. So to be protected from inner harm is to be protected from ill will, from hostility. Again, in the Metta Sutta, it says, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. So the absence of ill will, the absence of hostility, towards another or towards ourself. Even the absence of perceiving hostility when it's not there. You know that sense of like, oh, she doesn't like me. God, they hate me, right? We, we, we imagine ill will being projected at us. It's the absence of ill will. And this is what the Buddha referred to as liberation of the mind by the beautiful. The absence of ill will. What's the mind liberated from? When we can dwell in metta, we're liberated from fear, from anger, from hostility, from anxiety, from restlessness, from fear, from doubt, from stinginess. In a moment of kindness, in in that moment, are any of those things present? No. Right? What joy... What joy to be free from hostility. So this is the Buddha, he said. Develop what's skillful. It's possible to develop what's skillful. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't say to you, develop what's skillful. It's because it's possible that I say, develop what's skillful. If developing what were skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I wouldn't tell you to develop it. But because this development is of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. That this is possible to channel the water. One of my favorite verses from the Dhammapada goes like this. Irrigators channel water. Fletchers straighten arrows. Carpenters fashion wood. The wise train their minds. And that's what we're doing here. We're training our minds. We're training our minds to know just as well as we can feel our hands and our feet how to bring the mind to goodwill, how to liberate it from ill will. And you'll be surprised. I remember one retreat standing in line, and I can't tell you why, just seething with hatred for this person standing in front of me. I hated them. No reason. 
And then I realized, I was like, wow, there's a lot of hatred right now. Ill will. Oh my gosh. Put it down. May you be well. May I be well. It's not easy. It takes a lot of patience. It takes dedication. It takes courage to learn to make friends with ourselves, to learn to make friends with our heart. But we have all the conditions here to do it. We have the support of each other, of us on the teaching team, of the staff, and we have the boundless support of the forest and the sky and the wind. Take it in, you know. Let it touch you. So I'll end with another quote from the Buddha from the early texts about the liberation of the mind by the beautiful. This is how you should train yourselves to liberate the mind through kindness. Cultivate kindness. Follow it. Practice it. And develop it. Let kindness be your guide, your vehicle. Steady yourself with kindness until it is consolidated and thoroughly practice a ground and a basis for all things. This is how you should train yourself. So let's just sit quietly together for a moment. If it were not possible to cultivate the good, I would not ask you to cultivate the good. But because it is possible to cultivate the mind in this way, I ask you to do it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.